first gentlemen six rounds in the super middleweight division in the blue corner he's wearing red trunks with white trim he weighs in at 167 and one half pounds his record five wins one defeat with two knockouts he's from cut and shoot texas introducing chuck walker walker Hey, welcome to Not Fade Away Podcast. I'm Gary Parker here with my co-host Craig Jones, and I'm really excited about today's episode. We've got a good longtime friend of ours. We've done some movie work together uh, over the last 10 years, and uh, what we want to talk to Chuck Walker about today is his boxing career. He uh, won a bronze medal in 75 of the Pan American Games and then went on to the 76 Olympics, so... Very glad to have you here, Chuck. Glad to be here. And uh, Craig, take it away. Well, uh, you know, my recall in the 1976 Olympics, it was four years after the uh, horrible tragedy at the Munich Olympics. uh, And so I think there was a a kind of a bit of a jittery anticipation of the next ones. I mean, it had been such a stunning event, but then... uh, then the four years, you know, rolled around and it was time to do it again. They turned out to be really special. Uh, Mark Spitz uh, had one of the greatest Olympics ever as a, as a swimmer. But what we're going to talk today about was the 1976 Olympics because in regards to the U.S. boxing team, I think that it easily is, uh, the iconic word is not an overstatement. You know, on the team, and I'm just going to read, read the roster because I think it's important that as we different names come up, you'll relate that they were on the team, but it was comprised of Lewis Curtis, Leo Randolph, Charles Mooney, David Lee Armstrong, Howard Davis, Ray Leonard, known as Sugar Ray, Clint Jackson, Chuck Walker, the Spanks brothers, Michael and Leon, and John Tate. And we're going to talk about the team in general, the Olympics in general, but mostly we're going to follow Chuck Walker's exciting path to making the team, being part of the team, and uh, just the experience that very, very few of us ever have. So, Chuck, what I'd like to do first is just kind of tell us about how you got into boxing, uh, how you got good at boxing, the kind of that, and then your success as an amateur and leading to uh, getting on the Olympic team and just uh, let our listeners know about how those years were for you. Well, let's see. Um, well, first of all, I, I mean, I can start this segment by, by saying that uh, we, of course, I'm in the film production business now. We just finished a movie, my company did, called The Author, and it explores what, um, how, you, how you get to be what you are. And um, many times the way that happens is through such unusual circumstances. Um, In my case with boxing, I had never ever thought about becoming a boxer. In fact, the whole whole thing kind of scared me. 
But uh, when I was, I guess I was about 13, 12 or 13, in uh, Mesa, Arizona, my uncle came home one day, uh, and, and, and he and my dad had a business together out there, and we were together quite a bit. He came home one day, and he said, hey, just offhand, said, hey, Chuck, he said, I was downtown a while ago, and, and uh, I saw this poster up for some boxing matches in downtown Mesa. Um, at a, he, he mentioned the place. And uh, he said, uh, you want to go? And, and, of course, you know, I was 13. Anytime you got a chance to get out of the house, and my uncle was only in his mid-20s, so I said, oh, my God, sure, yeah, I'd love to go. So uh, we went to those matches, and it was just, just a little amateur lineup, 10 uh, three-round matches. And I sat there in, in, in the crowd, and the, the minute those fights started, I said, oh, my God. I mean, something came over me, and I can't even explain what it was, but I said, I've got to do that. I mean, it just something hit me. I said, I've got to do that. And uh, I don't know what resonated, but it was, you know, the reaction was the same. I just, I, I said, man, I, I, I was just taken by it. And uh, so after the, the fights for the next several weeks, I tugged my dad's sleeve till he finally agreed to take me down there. And he was a tough guy type anyway. And uh, I started training that night at the gym there in Mesa, old black fellow who became like a father to me by the name of Gene Lewis was the was the trainer and uh, they had pros there they had amateurs it was one of those little gyms like you see in Rocky where you know you you, you know you got the spit buckets and the and the old man brushing along with a whisk broom in his corners and and uh, not anything that the, the health department would approve. <laughs> but uh, I started training and just almost didn't miss a day for probably the next five years. All right. Well, that is uh, that's pretty cool. And that uh, reminds us, I think, of, uh, you know, what boxing used to be for one thing. It was in so many communities. It was such a big sport back then. I think that uh, in today's world, it's uh, not what it used to be, but it was that back then. So take us through when you really started having success in the amateur uh, ranks, what you did uh, in, in those years up until the point that uh, you, you thought you might have a chance to uh, you know, try out and eventually be on the Olympic team. Uh, well, you know, you, you start out without, at least I started out without any expectations. Um, I was a pretty good athlete in general, never had really pursued anything per se, but, you know, just on the, on the informal baseball field or football field or whatever, I could kind of hold my own. But uh, never was really hit with a bug by anything. And once I was hit with the boxing bug, I, uh, uh, boy, I tell you, it, it, it started getting amateur fights. And at the time in, in Arizona, amateur boxing was handled more like pros. 
except for the fact you didn't get paid. Uh, you, people would, I mean, clubs all over the state would get together and they would, uh, they would have a, a big, what they call a, 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 I forget what they call it, but just, just some matches, you know. And uh, generally you'd have about 10 fights and you get there and hope that you could get matched with somebody about your same experience level and about your same, um, you know, your same weight and whatnot. And so you gained your experience that way. Sometimes you got a fight, sometimes you didn't, but you trained every night. And uh, in my case, I have to say I trained really, really hard. I mean, for a lot of people it was, well, they'd get in shape for a fight, but then you wouldn't see them for another three months or six months or maybe not at all. And in my case, I mean, I was always in the gym the next day, and, and uh, I, it's hard to explain exactly how I was moved by the sport and the amount of, the amount of time that I was moved by it. I mean, for years, that was just absolutely, utterly my life. And uh, I loved it more than, I, I don't know, if somebody would, would have said when I was 14 or 15 years old, you know, you can live, but you won't be able to fight, I would have, I would have said, you know, take me now. That, that's it. I, there's nothing to live for. <laughs> okay, uh, tell me just uh, a little more specifically about uh, when you got into the the bigger, you know, Golden Gloves, you know, that type of thing, and uh, up in in the when it became more than just a local thing. Um, well, when I was about sixteen. Uh, yeah, I was going along and, and having an amateur fight here and there and training all the time. And, you know, I'd won several Golden Gloves championships in Arizona. As a matter of fact, I think I won the state championship 12 times in several different categories, AAU, Golden Gloves, different things. And uh, one day, my dad, we were on our way from, home from the gym, and my dad, who was very involved in my career and very helpful, he uh, he said, Chuck, I want to talk to you about something. He said, he said, you know, we come down here every night and we train, and you know, you put a lot into this and everything. But he said, it's we've always considered it kind of a fun thing, and and we both enjoy it, and I know you do. <clears throat> Excuse me, but he said, um, do you realize that you're actually uh, boxing with some of the best fighters in the world? from time to time, and that you're actually better than they are. And I had never even thought of it, but I, you know, I, I was an amateur with probably 10 or 12 fights under my belt, and I was sparring and, and whatnot with, with world-class pros, people who were like in the top 10 in the world, and I wasn't thinking much about it. They were just fighters at the gym, you know. We were all pretty close in there. And uh, he, uh, he, he brought my attention to something that I had not thought of, and he says, you know, you're just damn good. And I said, what, me? I'm just, I'm just an amateur with a few fights, and, you know, I love it, but me? He said, he said well, look at what you're doing. You know, you're holding your own against Art Alderetti, who was world-rated. You're holding your own against Alan Gant, who was world-rated lightweight at the time. And, and it just, and he started 
enumerating all these things, and I said, huh, maybe, maybe, maybe I am fairly good, and maybe I can pursue this. Ooh. How about that, George, for a combination punch? Ooh, a big right hand. Another right hand. Ooh, a left hook to the body. And you notice, right, you picked that one up well. Walker is moving those shots around. Head, body, right body, head. When did you get to the level where you became, you know, you were on the radar of the Olympic team, getting to try out a little bit that point in your career where you were just to be considered to get into the tryouts to me would have to have been quite an accomplishment. Well, that <clears throat> that's a very simple question because uh, at that time, I think it's changed a little bit now, but at that time, uh, in order to be considered for the Olympics, you had to you had to hold either uh, you had to be either the national Golden Gloves champion, the national AAU champion, um, or one of the the four uh, military champions nationally, and. To be real frank, and this, this will surprise a lot of people, uh, to be frank, I never really had an aspiration toward amateur glory or anything as huge as the Olympics. I mean, my, my entire thrust was to become a prof professional fighter. I mean, that was, I, I idolized professional fighters. And I thought, man, to be able to, to fight and do what you love and at the same time get paid for it and maybe get wealthy by it. You know, it was, it, was a, it was a thought that was really way, way out there. But that's what interested me. I really wasn't interested in, in I had never even thought of the Olympics. I wasn't really interested in big amateur fame. But that having been said, we, we put together a team uh, that went to, in, in Arizona, and we went to the, nationals in at that that was 1975 and to that point i had not really made any major waves in in the national boxing circles or international and so we went to a tournament in shreveport louisiana it was a huge huge tournament at the time it was a it had set records because it was it consisted of nearly 400 fighters in 11 weight classes that had been gleaned down from uh, the state level, the regional levels, and finally you had a bunch of teams getting together and, and you know, those 367 fighters fought in 11 weight classes for the national championship. And that was, it was a pretty big deal because, you know, if you got to be a national champion, in the amateurs back then, I mean, you were really considered to be something, and you were almost destined to be a really, really good professional fighter. Now, 1975 just happened to be the year before the 1976 Olympics, of course. But again, I, I wasn't really thinking about it. I, I, was, I was wanting to go pro as, as soon as I could. But we went to this tournament in Shreveport, and record-setting tournament, over the course of five days, I fought five times, uh, 
and again, going from absolute, complete obscurity, uh, where I was just a Golden Gloves champion in the state of Arizona, which had never been recognized very much for its boxing depth. Um, we went to that tournament, and I started winning fights. I fought five nights in a row, and then by the time the finals came around, which was going to be shown on CBS Sports Spectacular, they had uh, uh, Frank Gifford and uh, – uh, well, I can't even remember what the other guy's name was, but he was a famous telecaster at the time. And uh, my God, they interviewed me before the fight, and suddenly I was like the king of the tournament and hadn't even won it yet. And they're saying, "Oh my God, this kid Walker—he's—he's he's unbelievable." He just, and I'm thinking, "Shoot, this can't be me," you know. <laughs> and uh, so, as it turned out, I was scheduled to fight that afternoon in the finals, and they were going to show. As a matter of fact. We went to breakfast that morning, and uh, Frank Gifford, and it was Pat Summerall. Frank and Pat came into the cafeteria where we were being <laughs> fed, and uh, they saw us over at our table, and they waved, and I thought, no, they're waving at me. <laughs> and so they came over to the table, and they said, could we sit down for a second? And, of course, we said yes, and uh, they said, we just wanted you to know that the finals this afternoon uh, we're going to show three fights on CBS Sports Spectacular said we have talked to the to the big wigs at CBS and we have convinced them to show your fight because we think it'd be one of the most entertaining and so they said we wish you luck and we'll be there we'd like to do an interview after your fight should you win and you know suddenly I'm just I'm thrust into just this extreme national and international spotlight. I mean, CBS Sports Spectacular and Frank Gifford and these people that I've just grown up just hearing about, you know. And, uh, you know, the, the story, the, the storybook fairy tale contender, continued because that afternoon when I fought and they did televise the fight on, on network television, um, I fought the I was a light middleweight, and I fought the light middleweight champion of the world and was given no chance whatsoever of winning, and I knocked him out in the first round. <coughs> and, uh, Chuck, who, who was that? What, what was his name? His, his name was Keith Broom. He, uh, he turned pro later, you know, got into world ratings and whatnot, but Keith was a guy that I think is a very, very – I mean, as you can imagine, he was an amateur champion of the world – uh, it was a very good fight, but I think he got in, in his own way a lot. <laughs> and uh, so, anyway, you know, the uh, the knockout went down, and suddenly I was the darling of all the all the new fighters in the in the nation and the champion of the United States. Going from there, the next month, a team was taken to Miami, Florida to fight for the North American Continental Championship. I went there and I fought the champion of Canada and and beat him for the for the North American title. The very next month, uh, they had the it was a busy time. They had the Pan Am Games uh, trials. And of course the Pan Am Games is 
is second only to the to the Olympics in worldwide importance. It's kind of like the Western Hemisphere's um, version of the Olympics, a smaller version of the Olympic Olympics. And uh, so I won the uh, the trials after about three fights. And and you've got to understand, I mean, to fight at this level, and you're fighting every just about every single month and many of these tournaments leading up to whatever you're leading up to you know you have to fight maybe anywhere from two to five nights in a row I mean that's tougher than any professional fight you can imagine um, because you you fight a tough tough fight and you get up the next morning you got to make the way in again you fight that very night, and then you get up the next morning, you got to make the way, and you fight again the next night. Well, you know, all these bumps and bruises add up. And, uh, you know, you're getting banged around, and you're pulling muscles, and, you know, you, you, <laughs> you have black eyes, and, you know, it, 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 can, it is a really, really taxing, physically taxing situation. But uh, after the... Pan Am trials, of course, went to the Pan Am Games in Mexico City. I got a bronze medal, was very disappointed. I actually fought the champion of Canada again and beat him worse that time than I had the first time, but for some reason he got the decision, which happened to me actually quite a bit back at the time. And uh, then from that point on, that was the last major tournament of 1975, so from then on it was all 1976 and the same type of schedule and you know a lot of fights I think I ended up fighting 17 times to get on the team in a in a period of about three to four months so you can tell how busy I was as an athlete and it was not easy let me tell you <laughs> Walker is a smart smart fighter the Leonard Olympic team with Sugar Ray Leonard. And Howard, Howard Davis. Davis. All the speed Michael in the world. Spence. Leon Spence. <laughs> Leo Randolph. Just under two minutes to go in the sixth and final round of a fight that I'm sure is going to go to Chuck Walker. Thanks for joining us for White Chocolate with Chuck Walker. Be sure and check out the next episode for the part two of his story. Thanks for listening to an episode from our first season of Not Fadeaway Archives. Our fall season drops September 20th, don't forget. The high-tech world allows us to archive memories from a period of time in a manageable way we could never have imagined. We would like to invite you to join us. We encourage comments and ideas you might have. We have a list of future possible episodes on our website and our Facebook page. If you feel like you could contribute information about an upcoming episode or even be a guest, we would like to ask you to email us at notfadeawayarchives at gmail.com. Our suggestions for episodes are a small fraction of the possibilities. We plan episodes on memories of events like the JFK assassination and the moon landing, which are memories we all share. But we want to learn about events and people that many of us might not know about that would make episodes we would all like to know about. 
We hope our published and suggested episodes stimulate many more program ideas. Much of the inspiration for Not Fade Away came from an annual reunion Craig attends with college friends. Most of the conversations centered around memories from over 50 years ago. We're going to reach out to colleges and things like the 55 and over communities to help us reach alumni and residents. Baby boomers have memories to share that are literally infinite. Our funding mechanism for Not Fade Away Archives is Apollo Art Speakers. Apollo Art Speakers produce excellent sound by vibrating aluminum photo art. Like Not Fade Away, these speakers are about memories. Let's let an Apollo art speaker owner tell us about his. Hi, I'm Bobby. I'm a retired Texas public school administrator. And since I've retired, uh, I've been building a, a man cave out at our, our place in the country. And I'm here today to show a few friends uh, what it looks like. Here's my great TV, big screen TV, listening to some great music and displaying some great artwork. There's an interesting story about this piece of artwork up here, this beautiful piece of artwork. In, in 2017, my mother-in-law passed away and my, my wife was sitting on the side porch of our, uh, of our house here and she noticed the beautiful sunset uh, to the west across our pond. She actually took this picture using her iPhone and uh, the, the picture turned out great and we turned it into a piece of art. Great music coming through a great speaker system and the great thing about it is that artwork that I just talked to you about, that is actually the sound system, audio system uh, produced by Apollo Art Speakers. The distinction about the Apollo Art Speaker is the clarity and detail in the music we're listening to and the television. The things I told you about is what makes Apollo Art Speakers a great product. But the special thing about it is we were able to use a photo that is very special to my family to build the speaker. A financial planner has a photo he took on a trip to Iceland hanging in his office. He bought the largest speaker that is sold. The photo and the sound that comes from it are stunning. Everywhere an Apollo art speaker hangs, people can't tell where the sound is coming from. They just know it sounds great as it fills the room. We also have terrific photos from a professional photographer, Dave Clements. Apollo art speakers hanging in homes and offices include an incredible picture of eagles in flight and licensed photos of Sir Paul McCartney and another one of Tom Petty. These two photographs are among hundreds Dave's published in coffee table books featuring musicians. The books are a fundraiser to combat Rett syndrome, which is a horrific disease that affects young girls. Apollo art speakers hang on the wall and are easy to install. Apollo Art Speakers includes a copy of one of Dave's books with every Apollo speaker sold. For more information on Apollo Art Speakers, visit our store on Etsy.com. We encourage you to get a free subscription to Not Fade Away Archives wherever you listen to your podcast. 
The music you will hear now is on a vinyl record playing through an Apollo art speaker unfiltered through a single mic. Our memories will not fade away. I'm gonna tell you how it's gonna be. Are you gonna give your love to me? A love to last more than one day. A love is love and not fade away. A love is love and not fade away. 